So this past, uh, this past Tuesday, the staff were coming back from lunch. That's our routine on Tuesday. We meet in the morning in the chapel and we spend time praying over the requests that come to us through the communication cards and other requests that come in throughout the, the days. Um, we, we have a time in the word together. Then we transition over to the conference room and we have our staff meeting where we cover all the, the business of the church for the coming week or so. Uh, and then we put a, a cap on the, the time together by going out to lunch. And this past Tuesday, we went uh, to everybody's favorite country buffet at none other than Captain Bob's there in Hereford. Had, had a great time together for lunch. We were driving back, fighting off the food coma that is always uh, there when you fill your belly full of fried chicken and uh, whatever else is on the, the buffet there. And as we're driving back, we were talking about uh, the various social media platforms that are out there in the world that people use. And we were talking about um, how they're different from each other and how people tend to use them. And our, our focus was particularly on uh, Facebook and Twitter, or X if you want to call it that. Uh, by the way, when you send a tweet, what is it called now? Does anybody know? A tw- I call it a Twix because it's like Twitter and X combined, but I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. But anyway, um, if someone were to ask me, you know, what is the primary difference between the, the use and the focus of Facebook and X or Twitter? Um, I would say something like this. Um, Facebook is where people tend to go to talk about themselves, right? They share pictures of their family or their vacation or the latest food that they ate or something like that. It's about their sort of their own little sphere of their, uh, their life in this world. But Twitter is where people go to talk about the world. They talk about the news. They talk about current events. It's sort of a, a community forum, a global community forum where, where uh, people uh, debate and exchange ideas and, and, com- and commentate on the things going on in the world. Uh, but Twitter is also a great place to find memes. Are there any meme lovers in here? Come on, you know, you know you're out there. I see wives poking husbands. I see people looking down with smiles on their face. I personally love a good meme, and I send my share of them uh, to everyone within my sphere on a regular basis. Um, I am particularly fond of the ones that have the you had one job caption. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, that you can just do a Google search or go to youhadonejob.com or something like that. You can find just uh, galleries and galleries of, of pictures of, a, of a, a, a simple thing, usually um, very obvious, and it's a, a fail of some kind. Somebody has gotten something wrong. They've installed a, a door handle backwards, or maybe a road sign is flipped upside down, or a simple word is misspelled. Just some very simple, basic thing that was a mistake, and the caption is, you had one job. Anybody seen those before? Anybody out there? Are you awake this morning? Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right. No, we don't need an amen for that. You can save those for later. Just want to make sure I've got you with me here this morning. Well, as we're going to continue our study here in 1 Samuel, we'll be in chapter 13, um, we're going to be looking at the early days of Saul, who was Israel's first king. And we're going to see how his reign starts off on the wrong foot. And we're going to take notice of the consequences of his failure to do the one job that was required of him. He had one job, and he failed. So if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'm going to be reading starting in the middle of verse 7, and, on, and I'll be concluding uh, down there in verse 14. 
Um, I'm going to read the text, and we'll come back, and we'll give a little bit of context, okay? So if you feel kind of lost, kind of where we are, I'll come back and fill in the blanks here in a moment. Verse 7, Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and to welcome him, but Samuel said, What is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering for me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, The Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now chapter 13, if we were to hit the rewind button and go back six verses or so, chapter 13 begins with what is really Saul's sort of official introduction as the king of Israel. But immediately, no sooner is he announced king within the, the, the text here of 1 Samuel, no sooner do we hear that he's king and get this sort of official introduction of him, you begin to see some warning signs appear. So, so these yellow flags begin to pop up. You see there in verse 3, uh, it describes how um, Saul's son Jonathan secures a victory at the Philistine garrison, uh, garrison at Geba. And the news, however, in verse 4, is that Saul has won this great victory. And already, the, the curious reader is thinking, well, how is it that Jonathan is the one that secures the victory, and yet Saul is now, you know, riding all around Israel claiming the victory? And, and you could argue back, well, you know, Jonathan is there at Saul's behest, right? It's like saying President so-and-so defeated such-and-such -such country, you know, we ascribe the, the victory of the military to its commander-in-chief. And you could say something like that, that Saul has defeated the Philistines at Geba. Even though it wasn't Saul, it was his son Jonathan. But really, the, 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 the warning flag that's popping up here is not so much that Saul appears to be taking credit for something he didn't do. What is the real warning sign here in these verses? Well, you have to go back a little bit in in the book of 1 Samuel, to, to see where the warning sign comes from. And we're going to go back to where we were last week. Back in chapter 8, verse 20, when the people have come to Samuel and they're demanding a king, what, is, what are the requirements of the king in the eyes of the people? What is the king, what value does the king bring? What benefit do they stand to gain from, from being like the nations around them? Well, it says there in chapter 8, verse 20, our king will judge us and do what? Do you remember the other thing that he was expected to do of them. He's going to judge us, and he's going to lead us into battle. He's going to lead us into battle. He himself will be at the front of the line. He will show the people how to march forward under the name of Yahweh. And yet, as careful readers, we have to wonder, 
At least this, at this point in the text, we don't have all the answers yet. If we're reading this for the first time and we're paying very close attention and we don't know the outcome of the story, you, if you're watching and you're reading and you're thinking closely, you have to say, why isn't Saul at the front of the line? Why isn't he leading the people into battle? And as we read on in the text, our suspicions are confirmed that Saul isn't the right man for the job after all. Sure, we know from chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that he comes from a a wealthy family, an influential family. He's got the pedigree down. The text even says that he was, quote, the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders, taller than anyone else in the land. He's the right kind of person to pick to be a leader, isn't he? Has all the connections. He's not bad to look at. He stands out from the crowd. He's a natural leader. Of course we would want someone like that. We would follow him anywhere. And yet, it would appear that good looks aren't what the Lord is after at all. Now, on the surface, we can sympathize with Saul's decision here at Gilgal. At least I can. I don't know if you feel any sympathy for him. I do. Israel has found themselves in a tight spot, haven't they? After Jonathan's victory, the Philistines respond there in verse 5, which we didn't read, but we're still doing context here. How did the Philistines respond? To this, to this surprising victory at the hands of Saul's son, Jonathan. Well, they mustered, quote, a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. That sounds like quite the army, doesn't it? This is the response. This is the escalation. Israel has struck the Philistines respond, and they're responding sort of with a shock and awe campaign. This is a, an Everyone, let's gather together and let's, let's show those Israelites what we're made of. Let's put them in their place. Let's end this forever. And as Israel sees this army amassed, what are they doing? Well, they're so outnumbered. They're so pressed up against, uh, uh, they're so pinched between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. They're so pressed in upon that it says they're hiding in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and cisterns. Now, speaking of shock and all, um, I, I still remember the second Iraq war of my lifetime anyway, uh, 20-some years or so ago. I still remember how the, the, the forces invading Iraq cut through those forces like a hot knife through butter. I remember seeing the, the pictures of the bombs and the, the airplanes and the tanks just rolling almost unabated across, uh, across the, the desert. And I remember when Saddam Hussein himself was captured, and it was 20 years ago this year, I believe, 2003, do you remember when Saddam Hussein was captured? Do you remember where they found him? All right. <laughs> yeah, they found him in a hole, a spider hole they call it, which is you know, a hole in the ground just big enough for a person to hide in. He was there with a, a, a pistol, a rifle, and three quarters of a million uh, U.S. dollars. Now, some of you guys are sitting here thinking, what more could a guy need? Right? Some guns, some cash, and a hole in the ground. I mean, it does, we, we are simple creatures. It does not take much to please us. And I'll tell you, I would love to be, go sit in a hole in the ground with some guns and some cash right now. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. But that's how they find him. They almost found him by accident. They've been sweeping, looking for him, and so they're getting ready to, to extract from the zone they're in, and a soldier happened to step on, a, I think, a piece of wood that was kind of soft or moved, and they popped it open, and, and lo and behold, there was their target, sitting there like a rat in a hole. That's how they found him. And that's the picture of Israel in this chapter. Right? That they are the, the, the people being invaded. They are the people so vastly outnumbered. 
that they are so sure that there's no way that they stood a chance that they're looking for any hole in the ground that they can find them find to hide themselves. Some of them are are def- they're just they, they abandon the army altogether and they're they're trying to make it across the river on their own. They're they're just escaping any way they can. Others defect and go to the other side entirely, which we, you don't you don't learn until the next chapter. There's some who are who are like we can't win, so it's better to to leave and change sides and 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 not die. And that's the situation that Saul was was finding himself in here as he was vastly outnumbered. But you know, this is not the first time that the people of God have been vastly outnumbered like this, is it? This past Wednesday night, uh, our lesson for the the youth group was from Exodus chapter 14. And in that chapter, we see we see Israel once again on the run. They're, they've been released from Egypt. They're making their way out. Pharaoh has a change of mind, a change of heart. And instead of m- making good on his word to let the people go, um, he he, has a, he, he changes course, and then God hardens his heart further. And next thing you know, it's just like this story here. All of Egypt, the, 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 the entire army of the world's great superpower is in hot pursuit of Israel. And, they, and Israel finds themselves caught between Pharaoh's army and an impenetrable sea. It's kind of like what's going on here. It's not the first time this has happened. And what happens as, Israel, as Pharaoh's army is approaching? What takes place next? Now, you would be tempted to say, well, Moses parts the Red Sea and they walk across on dry ground. And you would be partially right. That's not the very next thing that happens. The thing that happens before the sea parts is the, the great pillar of cloud and fire that was the, the manifestation of the presence of God that had been guiding them to this point. That very same pillar changes locations to the rear of the camp which is another way of saying God himself shielded Israel from their attackers. And as, as Pharaoh's army is cut off from behind, then the waters part and the people walk across on dry ground. And as Pharaoh's army pursues, the walls of the sea collapse and an entire army is destroyed. The people of God, when caught between a rock and a hard place, witnessed firsthand the power and the glory and the protection and the guidance of God himself. God miraculously guides and protects his people. And if Saul had only been the man of God required of Moses back in Deuteronomy 17, he would have known this. And you might be saying, what are you talking about last week? We were there last week. This is when Moses is restating the law for, the, for Israel before they cross into the promised land. This is a whole generation removed from that time at the Red Sea. Some 40 years later, they're getting ready to cross into the promised land. Moses is, re, is re, reminding the people of what, what the covenant consists of. And in this restating of the law, he says there will come a time when you might ask for a king. And that's okay. But remember, if you do, he has to be a certain kind of king. And we get those details there in chapter 17. He says, when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. In other words, he has to copy it exactly. 
listen through these verses for the emphasis on exactitude and repetition. All right? This is the type of king. He has to be faithful to the scriptures precisely. He must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests to to avoid any type of mistake, to avoid any type of error or any type of misunderstanding. He has to know exactly what it says. He must always keep that copy with him. Not a different copy, right? Not not a copy that, you know, a friend said, hey, I want to present you with this this, uh, this gift Bible in honor of your coronation or in honor of, you know, your great defeat, this, this victory you secured over the Philistines or whatever. You know, this one showed up in the mail. It's, from a, it's a new translation that I came up, that my friend came up with. I mean, no, he is to keep that copy with him at all times. The one that is guaranteed to be exactly as it is supposed to be. And what is he supposed to do with it? He is to read it daily for as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. Not some. Not the ones that are convenient. Not the ones that seem relevant to a situation. Not the ones that he understands. But all the decrees. All the instructions. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Do you hear? Do you hear the requirements of the king? Do you hear what the expectations were for him? This is the type of man you must select to lead you. This is the type of person you are to follow. The one who is absolutely faithful to the word of God in every jot and tittle. You do not depart, he will not depart from it from a second. He will read it daily. He will be utterly faithful faithful to it, and you will follow him. And if Saul had been that kind of king, I am convinced that he would have known how Yahweh acts for his people in desperate times. Listen, the story of the Exodus is not just some sort of side note in the history of Israel, is it? It's not as if, you know, there's a lot of really important stories that happen and important figures and events. Oh, and by the way, there's this one time when there were kind of trapped in Egypt and God gave them Moses and he led them out of captivity. No, that is the story. If you miss that story as an Israelite, you miss all the stories. And, and, And even the coming of Jesus and the salvation Jesus has provided and we as Christians, our understanding of what that salvation is, is rooted in that story. If, if Saul had been a fraction of the man that Deuteronomy 17 requires, he would have remembered that story. This good-looking, connected, wealthy, tall, Fabio-like leader. On, on, by everyone's account, by external appearances, he was the perfect one. The best-looking guy. How can he be so stupid? He would have known that when the people of God trust in God rather than taking matters into their own hands, that they would become witnesses 
to the power and the glory of God, to the presence of God in miraculous ways. That's what Moses tells the people that God said. God says in Exodus 14, for me to tell you this, I know you have the water there. You can't, there's no way you're getting through that on your own. And I know you have the army bearing down. There's no way you can defeat them. You're just a bunch of freed slaves. You're not some sort of sophisticated military force. You're just a bunch of slaves. And this is, this is Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. I know that you're caught between these two things and it's impossible and, and your life seems to be over and all is lost, but this is God's message for you. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. That's, that's the word of the Lord for the people of God. When all seems lost, that's what he has to say to them. And such is the, the, the providence and the power of God that their greatest oppressors become the very instruments of God's glory. It's not as if God was saying, let me deal with them and then I will show you what I really like. No, God's saying, through your greatest oppression, through your hardest situation, through this impossible scenario you find yourself in, it is through that and in that and by that that I will make myself known to you and to all the world. And Saul should have known this. This is, this is like ground floor, base level, foundational, fundamental truth that should have been deeply embedded in his consciousness. This is the lifeblood of Israel's faith. This, is, this forms the very fibers and sinews of their worldview, ever present in their mind, ever present and in, in established and deeply rooted in their hearts. But for Saul, it wasn't. And in his moment of greatest need, he takes matters into his own hands. Israel is overwhelmed. Saul's army is disappearing. And oh, by the way, Samuel's late. You can almost hear the, you hear the, the accusation in his voice, don't you? My army's leaving. I had to do the sacrifice. And where were you? Isn't it interesting that, that the one at the top, you know, they say something like the buck stops here. Right? The person, the person in charge bears, yes, they have authority, but with the authority comes responsibility. And the worst kinds of leaders are the ones who are, are deficient on one or the other. They, they rule, but they don't take any responsibility for themselves. Right? And this is Saul. He wants, he wants the, the benefits of being the leader without the responsibilities of being the leader. And, he, and when, when the buck comes to him, he passes it on to someone else. Where were you, Samuel? You said you'd be here in seven days, and you weren't here. I had, to do, I had to do what needed to be done. It's so sad because, you know, things have been going so, so well. They didn't start immediately wrong for him. You know, if you go back to chapter 10, that's the chapter where Samuel anoints Saul, and Saul sort of steps into this role for the first time. And in the first six chapters of, first six verses of that chapter, Samuel gives Saul uh, a series of signs. He basically says, now that you have been anointed as king, the following X number of things are about to take place in your life. And they're really specific too. That's what it cracks me up as I read it. It's like so specific, so much detail. And it's like, what is going on here? 
you know, later today, you're going to see a couple of guys, they've been looking for some donkeys, uh, but the donkeys have been found, and now they're looking for you, and you can now tell them, you know, what's going on so that your family will know where you are, okay? Well, then later on, you'll see three others, and they're heading, you know, they're on their way to worship there, and they're going to be carrying some supplies, and they will offer you some bread. Okay, thank you, Samuel, that's good to know. Oh, and then afterwards, you'll encounter some musical prophets. They're playing a harp and a tambourine and a flute and a lyre. But did I say it's, they're being specific? They're, they're like naming, Samuel's na- naming the instruments that these musical prophets are going to be, be playing. And, and when you see them, Saul, uh, together, uh, you will prophesy to one another. What is going on here? What, what is the purpose of these signs that Samuel is giving to Saul that list with such specificity everything that's about to take place in his life over the coming hours, days, or however long the time transpires? Well, I believe that the purpose, there's, there's, a, there's something to be learned from this. There's something that God, through his prophet, wants the king to know in starting out his reign. What's the most important thing you need to know, Saul? It is this. God's word is true. God's word can be trusted. Even in the finest details. I hope you're connecting dots in your own mind and heart right now about the placement and the role of God's word for your life. Saul, it's not just true in the big things. Yes, we know that there's sin and evil in the world, but in the end, God wins. Yay, God, boo, devil, let's all go home. No, right down to the exact type of instrument that is being carried by someone you've never met before, it'll come true exactly as God's word has said it would. What is lesson number one for you, Saul? God's word is number one. And oh, by the way, God is, is, is in all this. He's, he's for you, Saul. He, he's got your back. He's, he's working in your life. He's, he's providing for your needs. You know, you'll be hungry, and they're carrying food. You, know, you, you may be concerned about your family. You know, you've been away from them for a while. They're probably starting to wonder where you are. Well, I'm going to provide a way for them to, to be comforted. God's caring for Saul's needs. He's providing for his needs. He's comforting his family. He's filling him with the Spirit. You will have the Spirit of God. You will become a new man. That's the promise. You will be transformed. I've called you. You, in a way, have been called to this moment. And I'm, even though I was against it, even though I told the people what would happen, I'm still going to give you my Spirit. I'm going to equip you for the task at hand. You will have everything that you need. And that's why the first couple chapters of Saul's reign are going so wonderfully because it's all about what God is doing. God's provision is never not enough for his people. His word is always sufficient. It, is all, it always supplies everything that we need to live into what we have called to be. And no wonder things are going so swimmingly. Things are wonderful at this point. But after the signs, Samuel says this in verse 8. And as this plays itself out, a couple chapters late, three chapters later, this is where the wheels come off. He says in verse 8, 
after these signs take place, Saul, after you know deep in your heart the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God in his word, after that happens, go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And here's the, the, the one command. You have, you have one job. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. In other words, Saul, yes, as a king, you have many responsibilities. But you really only have one job. God has done everything for you. He has anointed you. You've been called and confirmed and provided for and empowered. You have, you have everything you could possibly need to be the king that Israel needs. And Samuel even said it himself, if you'd have just, if you'd have just lived into that, God would have established your kingdom forever. Isn't that interesting? That Saul could have been the 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 great, great, great grandfather of the Messiah himself. I, I, my brain has a hard time wrap, wrapping itself around that possibility. It's what Samuel says. If you'd only done this, this is what would have happened. God's plans in some way, and I don't mean this in any way to undermine your confidence in the sovereignty of God. Of course he's sovereign. Of course he's, he's providentially working in the world and he's, things are never out of his grasp. It's not like things are spinning out of control and God's frantic trying to put things back together. And yet, somehow, in, in God's working in the world, he makes room for people to choose. He makes room within his providence within his master plan for people like you and me to choose. Saul had a choice. God has provided everything he needs. And he was told to do one thing, to wait on God's word, which he didn't do. Because as you remember, he wasn't just told, wait seven days and then do the offering yourself and carry on with your business. No, it was wait seven days until I arrive. Samuel being the very mouthpiece of God to Israel and to Saul, wait seven days until the word of God arrives and then we will sacrifice and then I will tell you what to do next. Which part of the command is more important, by the way? Is it the, the number of days? Is it possible that we can get so fixated on the letter of law that we miss the spirit of law entirely? I mean, isn't that the very essence of legalism? Like, it's all about the rules and following order and doing things exactly as it says, but we can be so dead in our heart. That's the Pharisee. They're whitewashed tombs. They look great. They have everything together on the outside, but inside they are dead as a corpse. They miss the whole spirit of it all. But it just so happens Saul misses the spirit and the letter of the law. He misses the whole thing here. Which is more important? The seven-day component or the waiting on the God's, God's word component? Well, frankly, it's a trick question. They're equally important. There is no one part that's better because it's all from the word of the Lord. Which, which part of God's word is most important for you? Which, is, which, is, which page has the part that's the most important part? 
And which part has, which page has, you know, the part that mm, doesn't really apply to me, I don't understand it, and it talks about stuff that's kind of crazy, and well, I went to this class in college, and they talked about how we need to, you know, deconstruct our faith, and we need to demythologize, you know, literature, and, you know, and well, I mean, these kinds of things sound like it's made up, it's, oh, it's, or it's just allegorical, it's not, it didn't really happen. We do that kind of stuff all the time to the scriptures, and we make ourselves a standard of what is true and what is not. And I want to tell you, at this church, we believe the whole thing is true from cover to cover, and everything it affirms, and it is alone the sole authority for your life and for my life and for faith and godliness and for salvation. And we start playing these games where we pick and choose what is true and what is not. How do you know if anything's true? If we're the standard of truth, what happens when someone else's standard of truth is different than ours? Who do you decide who's right and wrong? You can't play these games with God's word. And that's what Saul's doing. He's picking and choosing which things he will obey, which things he think, which things he think matter, and which things do not. It reveals the sort of his posture towards God, his, his, the status, the condition of his heart. That's his fatal flaw. He failed to see that his duty as king is not to obey God's word in part or only when it's convenient, but to obey every part of it at all times. And in offering the sacrifice, he shows that he cares more about the ritual than God's word. Man, be careful about that in your life, please. Where what matters most, it's not so much God's presence or what God has to say, but doing all the things, right? Going through the ceremony of being a Christian, of being religious, going to church, dressing a certain way, using certain vocabulary, putting certain things on your Facebook page. We're great at, at curating an image for the world around us to see. But God's not looking out here, is he? He's looking, he's looking here. He's not superficial like we are. He looks upon the heart. And if we're not careful, we can get so wrapped up in the externals and the rules and following protocol and the ritual and ceremony of being a person of faith and not even being a person of faith. And God's word becomes, well, unnecessary. It's disposable. It's there for when I want it or when I feel like I need it. And I can dismiss it when it's not important. Or when things are urgent and I don't have time to wait on God, I'm just going to take action because it's an emergency. It's a crisis. What should Saul have done? What would you have done? Logic says Saul acted rightly. Right? Logic says um, his, his, his army was falling apart. He didn't stand a chance to win. And if he didn't spring to action, he waited long enough. He waited the whole seven days. He waited long enough. You know, maybe, maybe Samuel was wrong. Maybe he misspoke. Maybe if Samuel really was on top of things, he would know what a, an emergency this was. And you know what? Okay, so I'll, I'll do it my way, but I'll just ask for forgiveness later. What did Moses tell the people to do in Exodus 14? 
as they're standing there facing certain doom. He gave this really inspiring counsel that will make all of you just feel so excited and brave and and powerful. He says, stand still and watch. I'm not a stand still and watch kind of guy. I just, I can't. Well, I'm being hyperbolic here. Um, It's not in my nature with the way I'm wired for that to be my first inclination. My response to fire is get the water. (laughs) And I get it. I saw, I could not sympathize with this man more. I truly do. I sympathize with the Israelites. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying that's the better way. But I'm saying as a broken, flawed, sinful, imperfect creature, I get it. And that's why I need the word of God to come to me and to remind me that God reveals his glory through our oppressors. It's not, let's get rid of the problems so I can get about the business of being a Christian. No, we, are, we learn what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, what the heart of God is like in the problems. And sometimes, if not all the time, in fact, I will say, every time, we have to stand still and watch Don't be afraid, Moses says. The Lord, he will rescue you. The Lord, he will fight for you. You will witness something today that will will be talked about for the rest of history. Don't spring into action. Don't despair. Don't take matters into your own hands. Do not fear or doubt or be anxious in anything, but be still. Wait patiently for the Lord And know that he is God. Friends, faithful waiting on God is not inaction. That's a a false assumption. It's not inaction to wait on God. It's not lazy. It's not slothful. Now, we can be lazy and slothful in not waiting on God. How about that? Right? Your action can be lazy faith-wise. Because it's easier for us to just do it. We can control that. I can control things if I can just get my hands on it. If I can get my hands in there, if I can get dirty, get into the problem, I can control it and manipulate it and get everything the way it needs to be. And God says, get your hands out of it. Until I tell you to put your hands in it. You seek me first. You wait on me first. You find me in the middle of what's happening first. Why does God even let the things happen to begin with? If God's all powerful and all good and he's, so- he's sovereign over his creation and he's working to bring us to a, his better end, why does anything bad happen at all? And it's easy to say, well, we're in a broken world. Okay, is he not powerful over the world? Well, the devil's roaming around. Okay, is he not power- more powerful than the devil? Why is the devil even allowed to roam? Why is he even allowed to have any type of influence or, or presence in the world at all? Why does he just 
end it all right now and make everything right? Well, maybe. Well, we know there's several answers to the question, but for the sake of where we are this morning, maybe God permits all of the hardship and all of the suffering and all the difficulties and all the crises so that we would learn to seek and trust and know him in a greater way. He uses the hardest of times to reveal the deepest of truths about himself. And just like with Pharaoh, he wants to reveal his glory through your oppressor. So will we be the type of people who take matters into our own hands? Or will we be the type of people who learn to wait on him, to trust in him, to obey his every word right away, all the way, with no reservation, no hesitation, no matter how urgent our circumstances. Saul's decision had dire consequences. We've already noted those. Because of his failure, God says, your kingdom will not last forever. But you know what's even sadder to me? It's in the very next verse. I didn't read it, but in verse 15, it says, Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way But the rest of the troops, they're down to about 600 at this point. (laughs) The rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. The saddest thing in the entire story of Saul is this parting of ways between Saul and the word of God. Nothing worse could have happened than that. Because, you know, God, God did reject his kingdom. But God has not rejected his person And Saul has every opportunity still. We're told he reigned for like 42 years. This is at the start of his reign. He had a whole lifetime ahead to to come back to God, to let God be at the center of his life, to let the word of God permeate him and his reign and his rule. He could have done great good if he had just taken the opportunity that had been given to him. But instead we're told just two chapters later in chapter 15 that Samuel never went to meet with Saul again. And because of that, he mourned constantly for Saul, and the Lord himself was sorry that he ever made Saul king. It is such a sad story. But there's good news embedded in it, and that's how I want to end. I know I've gone a little long today, but bear with me for two more minutes. There's good news embedded in this story, and it is this. No matter how badly Israel's king has failed to do his one job, God is still in control. And if we go back to the beginning of the chapter where we started this morning, we will see that even though the king is absent, that he's nowhere to be found to lead his army into battle, God has still raised up somebody. God has still raised up somebody. God God has not abandoned his people. The king may have, God has not. In this case, it was Jonathan. Because that's the kind of God he is. Yes, he invites people into his plans and his purposes. And even when people fall short, he is still in control. And he still accomplishes the things he will, that he desires to accomplish. And as Saul's kingdom is crumbling down, God is raising up another king. Samuel said it himself, even as you have turned from God, he is raising someone else up. And this man will be a man after God's own heart. And from this man will come a king, the king of all kings, who will fulfill all of God's purposes from eternity past. And his identity and his qualifications will not be found 
in his looks. In fact, we're told in uh, Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant that there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Plug that into your Christology, your understanding of Jesus. Then maybe Jesus wasn't the super muscular, tall, handsome guy that Jonathan Rumi, is that his name? The chosen Jesus? Like, that's a good looking guy. Like, I've seen him in other things. He's always got that flowing hair and the beard, and he just, he's like, he's ripped. Like, Jesus, man, Jesus is ripped. Maybe Jesus, the real Jesus, wasn't like that at all. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. No, this king will find his identification and will establish his qualifications, not based on his height, his looks, his connections, or his wealth. No, it'll be based upon his intimacy with the Father and his absolute fidelity to the word. And when he is completely abandoned, when his army has scattered, and the world turns against him, and even the Father's own face is is turned away, at the darkest point in his life, he still obeys. And he remains faithful. And he fulfills every bit of God's word. And the result of that is not the salvation of an army or a nation. It is the salvation of all the world. In the words of the, that old preacher S.M. Lockridge, that's my king. (laughs) That's my king. His promise is sure. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. And I will follow him anywhere. Will you? Will you follow him? This, my friends, is your one job. To trust his heart to trust his will, to trust his word for your life. I invite you to do that today. Pastor Jeff, let us pray. Lord, it saddens our hearts to to read a story like this and see what could have been. But Lord, I pray that this would in some way serve as a a cautionary tale for all of us. That the the summary of our lives when we are no longer here is not a, a tragic tale of what might have been. May it be said of us when we're gone and all that remains are the the people that we have left behind. May what be said of us then be, boy, were they faithful to God. They were men and women after God's own heart. When they faced difficult circumstances or challenges or hardships, their first instinct was not to take it upon themselves to fix things. Their instinct was to be still and to know that he is God. And their their lives were not focused on the mere external or the ceremonial, the superficial things, but they were about matters pertaining to the heart. 
And they, they welcomed you to their hearts. Lord, may we do that this morning. Help us to shed the, the old garments of playing church, going through the motions, being worried about what people think about us in, at work or at school or on Facebook or whatever, to, to forget about the image that we're carefully curating while we inside were something totally different. Lord, would you so touch and transform us from the inside out that everything we are from top to bottom and inside and out and outside in is one whole person. Conformed after the image of the Son. Lord, have your way in us. May we be a people who are absolutely trust, who trust in you absolutely and are faithful to your word to the, to the very end. Lord, have your way in these moments to come as we respond in song, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.